0: I wanna encourage you, if you're a visitor, to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19. You'll find it in the blue Bible in the pew in front of you. Those of you who have been here, you probably have already turned there. (laughs) We've been traveling through 2 Samuel together. Last week, we left David and the people of God on the banks of the Jordan River. They were preparing to make their way out of the wilderness back across the Jordan, down the road from Jericho, all the way to Jerusalem, the way back home. This morning, what we're going to realize is as David is encountering repentant sinners, these people who realize what they've done in betraying their king, and they come down into the water, and they meet David there, and they plead with him for forgiveness, while this beautiful scene is happening down in the water, An argument is beginning to take place up on the bank. And it's not just an argument between two different people. It's an argument between two different peoples. Israel and Judah. It's a national argument. Half the people over here. Half the people over here. Pointing fingers. Lobbing insults, hurling accusations, posting all kinds of nasty things about each other on Facebook and Twitter. Just imagine our current situation that's happening and has been happening for the past couple of months here. Uh, you've got Democrats over here. You've got Republicans over here. And the situation that's happening currently in our nation, that's what's taking place this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 19. Because an election is basically just a national argument, right? That's what's going on this morning in our story. David trying to make his way back to the seat of power, his throne. A fraction of the people are following him, but the majority... Well, we'll see what they end up doing. We saw how Satan's first attempt to destroy the kingdom of God was thwarted. He raised up Absalom that young man, the son of David, the traitor, has been cut off. But when that fails, Satan's second attempt to destroy the kingdom is not to attack the king, but to attack the people. Can he divide the nation? And just as King David's forgiveness seems to be bringing reconciliation and healing and forgiveness to a broken kingdom. All of a sudden, something happens. This relationship between the king and his people, it's supposed to be like a husband and his wife, the king and his bride. And the people of Israel committed adultery with Absalom walking out on King David. And here's King David willing to forgive. And instead, what happens in this moment of forgiveness, the people serve him a certificate of divorce. And that's what we have unfolding this morning. We're going to look at the argument that erupts. We're going to see, secondly, the catalyst, the spark. And then thirdly, we're going to see the divorce that takes place between the king and his people. So if you found 2 Samuel 19... We're going to stand together and begin reading in verse 40. The king went on to Gilgal, and Kimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away? And brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him. All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak in bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So David and his household and all of his men, they make their way up out of the Jordan River. And what appeared to be a renewal of the kingdom. We See, is spoiled by some rumblings. There's trouble brewing in verse 40. We're told all of the people of Judah were there and also half of the people of Israel to bring the king on his way. Only half of Israel. We, we can already get a sense that something is not quite right. All Judah's there, but oh, only half of Israel to begin with. If you are having trouble visualizing what's going on here, just imagine that Judah are Democrats and and Israel are Republicans, okay? And so we've got these Israelites, they're all from the same nation, but we have some of them who are on one team together, and they call themselves Israel, okay? Ten tribes. And then we have over here the tribe of Judah, which is one faction, another faction, and now we have these two factions, these two parties that are not in agreement with one another. They're all Israelites, but they're beginning to split. And eventually, if you know the history of Israel, Judah would remain faithful to the king and would become the southern kingdom of Judah. But these ten tribes that are already beginning to break off, they would go off and form their own kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. So I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, but that's what's going on here. We're already beginning to see this fissure, this crack coming in the kingdom. Ten tribes beginning to separate from the tribe of Judah. So all Judah is with David, but only half of Israel even starts the journey. Israel seems to only be half-hearted in its excitement about the king returning. It's inevitable. People splitting into factions. We have Democrat, Republican. We have Judah, Israel. When the people begin to split like this, inevitably, an argument is about to ensue. So let's first look at the argument. It begins in verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away? These are familiar tactics. If you, who here has ever argued before? No hands... May the record show no hands are raised. These are familiar tactics. The first way you start an argument is by putting the person on their back foot and you shift the blame onto them. Do you notice that? Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, they're the ones that have offended here. The argument begins with blame shifting. They did something wrong, not me. And you can see the finger wagging almost through the text. Those brothers over there, they're doing something wrong, and it's certainly not me. Shame on them. They did this, and not me. The people of Israel conveniently forget about how all of them were on board with bringing Absalom in and running David out of town. But now, when it comes to keeping a record of offenses, oh, no, 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 we have done nothing wrong The blame belongs to them. They forget that they were a part of the army that hotly pursued David into the wilderness trying to kill him. They forget how all of them watched as Absalom violated David's ten concubines in broad daylight and none of them said a single thing. Oh, no, 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 no. They don't remember or bear any of that blame. Judah is to blame. He started it, not me. They're the problem. It's also clear from the beginning, this argument is not going to be conducted in good faith because the Israelites use exaggerated language. Why have our brothers, the men of Israel, stolen you away? We were going to do this whole big parade thing for you, David. And then, of course, our brothers from Judah, who always have to get the glory for everything, they're the ones who want to be in the front of the parade. It always has to be about them. They've stolen you away. It's exaggeration. Anyone here ever done this before? We exaggerate not because we're trying to tell the truth. We exaggerate because we want to win the argument. Try this on for size. Well, you never take out the trash. I always have to remind you. You've done this like a hundred times exaggerated language why do we say these kinds of things it's not because we're interested in telling the truth it's because we just want to win an argument so it begins with blame shifting and then we employ exaggerated language in verse 42 the men of judah they stand up for themselves they try to defend themselves you know we've just experienced this amazing forgiveness from king david He's our blood relative. It just makes sense. In fact, if you read the story, the king is the one who invited them to be at the front of the parade. They're in this state of repentance and renewed trust in the king. They're completely blindsided. Look at verse, 12, verse 42. All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, but, well, because the king is our relative, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten it all at the king's expense? Are we dragging on your tax dollars, they say? No. Has he given us any gift to bribe us? No, he hasn't. But then the men of Israel come back with a third tactic, not just blame shifting in the argument, not just exaggerated language. They now employ hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you state the truth with wicked intentions. Intentions. You twist the truth in order to serve wicked intentions. So verse 43, they answer the men of Judah. We have ten shares in our king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak and bring you back our king? Technically, are they telling the truth? Yes. Do they have 10 shares in the king? Yes, there's 10 tribes involved in this conversation on this side, but why are they stating this fact? Because they wanna put Judah in his place. We are more than you. Ultimately, in this argument, the men of Israel, finally and fourthly, are clinging to their pride. That's what this all boils down to, this argument Why then did you despise us? Why did you dishonor us? Don't you know who I am? We deserve to be in the front of this parade. We should be getting the credit for bringing David back. Not you. When an argument boils down to a matter of pride, Satan doesn't have to divide the people of God over anything important it can be something as meaningless as who gets to walk in the front of the parade. When the argument is a matter of pride, he can divide churches over something as stupid as wearing a mask or not, or what style of music they prefer, or in an election season, which candidate they choose to vote for. Pride says, I feel slighted, and I don't like that. They didn't ask me, that's not how I would have done it, and that's not who I would vote for. When hearts are proud, it takes almost nothing to start an argument. The people of Israel are completely uncharitable in the way they're interpreting the actions of their brothers. And why? Because there's a heart problem here. They're assuming the worst of their brothers and sisters. Ultimately, the rebellion that took place in the previous chapters wasn't a rebellion that dealt with Absalom, it was a rebellion that dealt with the heart. Absalom is dead and still the hearts of the people are in rebellion. Kill the rebel king, rebellious proud hearts will easily find someone else to assume the throne. It's true the Israelites were the first to dabble with the idea of bringing David back. That actually is true. You can read it back earlier in the chapter. They were the ones that were kind of like, well, Absalom's dead. We ran David off, but maybe we can bring him back. It's actually David, though, who reached out to his own kinsmen, offered an olive branch, and said, Hey, guys, I want to bring healing to this nation. You all should be first. Let's heal this nation. And the forgiveness he extended to the people of Judah there at the Jordan River was meant then to flood into the rest of the people. But the people of Israel refuse to receive forgiveness. They take offense. Why? Pride. It's pride. Judah isn't a bunch of credit seekers. They're in the front of the line because they were the first to repent. They were the first to ask for forgiveness. Is that the case with the rest of all Israel, though? Do we ever find them coming and saying, King, will you please forgive me? We've sinned against you. Is it Judah that's brought dishonor on the people of Israel? No. It's the people of Israel in abandoning King David and anointing a traitor in his place and following after him that has brought rebellion and disgrace upon them. This is the argument. But an argument doesn't equal divorce. You've got to have a catalyst. You've got to have a spark that's going to ignite this explosion. And that's what happens next. The catalyst, the spark that sets things off, arrives in verse 1 of chapter 20. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bikri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David have no inheritance in the son of jesse every man to his tent so israel so all the men of israel withdrew from david and followed sheba the son of bichri sometimes all it takes to divide the people of god is a worthless man with a bullhorn or you might say a worthless man with a youtube channel a worthless woman with a podcast or a worthless commentator with a television show, or a worthless politician with a microphone. When the heart is ready for divorce, when the heart is filled with pride and longs for disunity and is feeding on hatred and disdain and shame and guilt, when the relationship is characterized by thrusting guilt on one another rather than forgiveness, blame-shifting, exaggerated language, uncharitable speech, gossip, slander, as the old song goes, It only takes a spark to get the fire going. It's all it takes to burn down the people of God. They are a powder keg. We just need somebody to strike the flint. The question for us today is not whether we are primed for division. We are all capable of what we see on this page. Every single sinner is capable of divorce. In our church, in our marriage, in our friendships, our families, our businesses, anywhere that you find people united with one another, we are all capable of bringing destruction and division. We can all burn it down. It just takes a spark. And here's the thing, if it only takes a spark, the truth is it's only a spark And those of us who have the spirit of God do not have to be triggered, set off by a spark. We see a spark, and this is what we do. Gone. Dealt with. Moving on. Because, brothers and sisters, the the truth is, yes, we are able to sin, but by the power of God, we have been given the ability also not to sin, which is something that non-believers cannot do. They hear the trumpet of some worthless man like Sheba and they can't help themselves. The temptation is too strong. The spark fans into flame, the pride in their hearts and the divorce, the separation, the disunity, the destruction is guaranteed. Not for the believer. Churches do not have to split. Christian marriages do not have to end in divorce. Christian friends don't have to become mortal enemies. We have something the people of Israel did not have in this chapter. We have the Spirit of God. We see in the book of Acts time and again the same kinds of sparks being thrown, trying to catalyze division among the people of God, all the tactics of Satan that worked in the Old Testament, but they aren't working anymore. Every time he casts a spark into the midst, the apostles, the elders, the people of God are putting their foot on top of it and putting it out immediately. A division arises among the people because their, their distribution of bread among the widows is, is not quite going right. And they think there's some favoritism going on. And what happens? The apostles come by the spirit of God. They appoint deacons. They put that spark out before the fire even gets started. Or the people of God are all being generous and they're giving. And then some people decide that they're going to be two-faced with their gift and they're going to hold some of it back. And they bring their gift before Peter and what happens? There's this opportunity for division again. Those two people are snuffed out and the people of God are unified in their fear of the Lord. Or there arises among the church, people are arguing, you have to keep the law, you don't have to keep the law, you got to be circumcised, you don't have to be circumcised. What happens? The apostles and elders gather together, the spirit falls, and... Unity preserved. We all have been given one spirit. We're all one in Christ. No circumcision needed. You see, a catalyst has no power on its own. It's an accelerant. It needs fuel in order to cause an explosion. That event in your life, whatever it is, that issue that has arisen this week or may come next week is not what's causing separation. Your heart is. Adultery doesn't happen in the moment of illicit interest. It happens in all the time leading up to that moment. If you and your wife are cultivating love forgiveness joy together in your home that moment that spark happens and it's out it's not even a question it should be the same way in the church of god If we are cultivating joy and forgiveness and love and gentleness that issue that spark comes in and it's gone there's no way that this church is going to be divided And yet, how did the people of Israel respond when the trumpet was blown for them? They were already primed and ready for a divorce. So, thirdly, we see this morning the divorce where the people of God separate themselves from their king. Look at verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 1 again. We have this worthless man named Sheba, the son of Bichri, at Benjaminite. And he blows the trumpet and he says, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David, and followed Sheba the son of Bichri. They served David with divorce papers. These are reverse wedding vows. We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. He's not our king. We're not his people. Marriage over. In fact, the people of God, when this divorce becomes permanent in 1 Kings, will echo these exact same words to David's grandson when they say, we're out of here, we ain't coming back. Marriage over. We want a divorce. It gives new significance when we revisit the events of John 19 as Jesus, the son of Jesse, stands trial before the people of Israel and Pilate gives them one last chance. You want me to crucify your king? And they say, huh, we've already served him our divorce papers. We have no king and but Caesar. It's a declaration of divorce. The people, the Messiah's bride, rejecting her husband, their king. Honestly, it's really sad because you think the people would have learned their lesson at this point. They've already cheated on David once. They ran off with his son Absalom And it's sort of understandable. Maybe in that instance, you know, Absalom, he had those long flowing locks and he stood there by the water cooler for four years and he flirted with them and he told them what they wanted to hear that they weren't getting from David. And you know, it's, it's actually David's son. So he's kind of in line for the king. And so you could see how they might justify cheating with Absalom. But the second time they run off with some guy they've just met, a worthless man. A man who's just taking advantage of them because they're on the rebound. And they're vulnerable, and the wound is still raw, and the relationship hasn't yet been healed between David and Israel. And in that moment, they're fighting. He swoops in, and he provides the spark, and the divorce is official. Have we so quickly forgotten what happened the last time the people of God ran off with another lover? We're reminded of it as the people make their way back, David and the few who remain with him into Jerusalem. He gets into his house and he finds destruction, walls graffitied, and inside, violation. Verse 3 And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines who whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. What David does here is sad. These ten women have been violated by Absalom, and he has to put them away. But what he's doing here is vindicating their innocence he cannot go back into them. He cannot be with them anymore. Amos two five says that would be profaning the Lord's name. And that's precisely why Absalom did this act. He, he's trying to commit the most heinous thing that he could think of against his father. David protects them. He shields them from their shame. He provides for them. And yet the irony of this whole picture is that the people of Israel... They are willingly offering themselves, the ten tribes, just like these ten concubines, to be willingly violated by a worthless man. Willingly. Not by a valiant king, not by a worthy gentleman, not by a faithful and wise king. These ten tribes, just like these ten women David finds and cares for in his home, these ten tribes are willingly offering themselves to a worthless man argument, the catalyst the divorce as we close we would be remiss if we chose to ignore those who did cling to their king in verse 2 so all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba the son of Bichri but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem We look on that noble band of repentant, forgiven sinners as they're following their king back to his home, clinging to the man who is their portion, their inheritance forever, and we're reminded of the psalmist in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart might, might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you guys know that in the Gospel of Matthew, this road that David walks here is the same road that Jesus walks on his way to the cross? From across the Jordan, to Jericho, to Jerusalem. Jesus arrives in the city of Jerusalem and he walks into his house and he finds it violated, polluted, graffitied. A people there dwelling and willingly giving themselves to be violated by foreign kings and the prince of darkness himself. And at the cross, we nailed the divorce papers there with him. We have no portion in Jesus. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. And the beauty of the gospel is that the nails that were meant to secure our divorce papers to the cross are the ones that bind believers to Jesus forever and ever. And when we go back to that cross where we left the divorce papers, we find a legal document, but it's, it's a marriage certificate. And it's one that says, the record of debt has been completely forgiven. Every sin that we have committed against our husband, Jesus Christ, O church, has been hung there and will remain there forever and ever. Forgiven. All of our trespasses, every sin we have committed will you this morning repent and believe in such a great and faithful king let's pray together lord jesus we pray that we would cling to you we pray that by your spirit you would extinguish any sparks that would bring disunity to your people discord destruction Certainly, Lord Jesus, we pray anything that would draw us away from you, our King, from clinging to you and faithfully following you. It's in your name we trust and pray. Amen.